0: In the days before the ballot, particularly in the countryside, most people had left their homes and gone to hide in the mountains. It was on the day of the ballot in the morning that people came down out of the mountains in the darkness by candlelight through incredibly difficult conditions and queued up before dawn so that they were there to be able to cast their ballot.
1: Welcome to the fourth episode of Global. I'm Stacey Brown.
2: And I'm John Tomaszewski.
1: For our new listeners, Global is a monthly podcast that seeks to provide its listeners with a holistic view of one country, reviewing its past, present, and future.
2: This podcast is produced by the International Republican Institute, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization seeking to advance democracy worldwide. So this month, we're covering the country of Timor-Leste, Stacey. It's a little bit different from some of the other countries where they've been sort of heavy in the headlines, but it's this is not something that we talk about every day, Timor-Leste. So I'm really interested in hearing more. Could you tell us a little bit about the fast facts? Give us some some quick and dirty facts about Timor-Leste.
1: It's located in Southeast Asia on the island of Timor, which is shared with Indonesia. The population is roughly 1.2 million, which is good because the island is only 5,600 square miles, and that's roughly about the size of Connecticut to put it in a little bit perspective. Wow. Their two official languages are Portuguese in Tetum, 96% of the population considers themselves Roman Catholic.
2: Oh, Stacy, peace be with you.
1: And also with you, JT. Thank you. Timor-Leste's political system is a unitary, semi-presidential republic.
2: That's a mouthful.
1: It is, so I'm going to break it down. This means they have a president, a prime minister, okay. and a unicameral legislature. The prime minister is the head of government, and the president exercises the functions of a head of state and of the executive branch.
2: All right, listeners, if you're not taking notes, please do. That's that's a lot of information right there. So what else?
1: Timor-Leste is a young country with a young populace. Around 611,000 of its population is under the age of 18 or roughly about 51%. Wow. 51% of the population lives on less than $1.25 a day, and Timor-Leste is ranked as a low-income economy by the World Bank. Okay. The last fact I have for you is kind of a fun one. There's an East Timorese creation myth that an aging crocodile transformed in the, into the island of Timor as part of a debt repayment to a young boy who helped him when he was sick. The way the myth goes, the island is shaped like a crocodile— and the boy's descendants are the native Timorese, East Timorese, who inhabit it. If you listen to the end of our Syria episode or any episode, way after the music ends, we always give a hint to what the next episode will be. So, shout out to Amy Tran, who attends York University in Toronto, who correctly guessed that this is the creation myth for East Timor.
2: Good job, Amy. So let's preview the guests. So we have Jose Ramos Horta. He's a remarkable individual. He was the second president of Timor-Leste, Stacey, serving from 2007 to 2012. Um, He was the John Adams of Timor-Leste, if you will, survived being shot during an assassination attempt on his life and is the co-recipient of the 1996 Nobel Peace Prize for his advocacy for his country's independence.
1: JT, do you want to hear a fun fact that I discovered about Jose Ramos Horta? Go for it. There's actually a movie about Timor-Leste named Balbo that was produced in 2009. And Oscar Isaac plays the role of Jose Ramos Horta.
2: Wait, the Oscar Isaac? Poe Dameron from Star Wars?
1: That's correct. Wow. You know, JT, when we interviewed him, I thought that he sounded a lot like a Southeast Asian Henry Kissinger. The,
3: the characteristic of Nixon was that the people who were socially close to him, who were very few, had nothing to do with his work. And the people who worked with him had very little to do with his social life.
1: And, oh, and for the record, I definitely mean that as a compliment. I'm sure you do. Another guest is Damien Kingsbury, an Australian academic and author of East Timor, The Price of Liberty. He has worked with election observation missions for almost all of Timor's elections since the end of the Indonesian occupation. Currently, he's a professor of international politics at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia.
2: Last but not least, Stacey, is our colleague and astute senior advisor for Asia, Joanna Cow. Joe Cow has been with IRI since 2000 and opened IRI's office in Timor-Leste in 2000. She's worked in almost every country in Asia and lives and currently works in Burma. So I can't wait to speak with her.
1: Yeah, it sounds like we've got some great individuals up. Uh, So let's get started.
2: Yeah, let's get started.
1: President Horta, of all the islands in the Indonesian archipelago, what makes Timor unique? Tell us about Timor-Leste's identity.
3: It was the Portuguese presence that brought Christianity and that began to shape an identity because there was not such thing as the people of East Timor. It was an island, then there was uh, the Dutch and the Portuguese colonization, Uh, then uh, you have tribes, clans, uh, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. So it was the Portuguese colonial rule that uh, defined the boundaries of what today is East Timor and what is West Timor, Indonesia and they contributed to shaping a national identity, which is Timorese identity, finally, which is based on a, a common religion, 97, 98%, and an almost common language, because we didn't have a, a common language. The Tetum language was a minority language, but it was a language that was used by the first missionaries to Christianize the country. So slowly, Tetum became a national language now spoken by maybe 90% of the people.
1: Didn't I tell you his voice was great?
3: So we have two pillars in our history uh, that form the basis of what East Timor is today, what Timor Leste is today, what the people of Timor Leste are majority Catholic, with small Protestant and Muslim communities speaking a major national language that is fed by Portuguese also language, very much influenced by Portuguese language.
1: Language in Timor-Leste is so interesting because the official language of the government is Portuguese and their constitution is also in Portuguese. But very few lawmakers in Timor-Leste actually speak Portuguese. Mr. Kingsbury, could you give us a brief overview of Timor-Leste's history prior to the restoration of their independence in 2002?
0: About 400 years ago, Portuguese uh, explorers and traders came across the island and over the next couple of hundred years developed uh, significant trading relations, particularly in the area of Sandalwood. About uh, 200 years ago, the Portuguese became more serious about their colonisation of the island. Or um, The Dutch also moved into the western part of the island and eventually the island was petitioned uh, in the middle of the 19th century. The Portuguese ruled in Timor, East Timor until... 1975 uh, at which time there had been a move for independence now this also coincided with the portuguese government decolonizing uh in other areas such as africa in 1974 portugal was going into a process of political change domestically portugal uh, was europe's first colonizing power and had retained colonies around the world for hundreds of years Uh, a number of those particularly in africa in uh, mozambique and angola ended up in revolutionary movements against colonialism and portugal as a poor and struggling european country was really unable to maintain either its colonies or the defense of its colonies against these independence movements in east timor it was actually, independence was actually encouraged by portugal throughout the latter part of 1974 and into 1975 there arose a number of small political parties the two major ones of which were Fretilin on one hand, which was a leftist independence movement, and the other was uh, UDT, uh, Temeri's uh, United Democracy, though, uh, which was a more conservative party. Those were the two main parties which were at the front of the independence movement. UDT w- wanted to maintain closer links uh, with Portugal, and Fretilin wanted to break links entirely. Indonesia saw this happening and thought that it should incorporate the decolonizing territory into its own country, because East Timor sits, if you like, like a bit of an enclave within the Indonesian archipelago. In particular, the Indonesian government was very concerned that the independence movement in East Timor was a left-leaning movement. Keep in mind that this is 1975, and... Uh, Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia had all fallen to communist revolutions. So the Indonesian government was concerned that East Timor might be used as a launching pad for communism in the region. So the Indonesian intelligence services started to infiltrate the right-wing UDT party and uh, started to encourage a sense of mistrust of Fretlin. This sense of mistrust eventually erupted into conflict in August 1975. And there was a brief uh, civil war, if you like, between the two parties. Um, It only lasted about two weeks. Franklin had the local uh, Portuguese, uh, Timorese Portuguese militia on side. So they were militarily superior. And within about two weeks, the conflict was over. It was very bloody. It was very nasty. Quite a number of people were killed. And uh, there were a number of atrocities and human rights abuses during that time but within about two or three weeks the whole process had more or less finished frettlin as the victorious party then went about setting up the basics of government which it did but as it was doing this in september and particularly october 1975 the indonesian government realized that it was not going to be able to uh, win a political battle through its proxy udt in East Timor, so it would mount a covert military operation across the border. Uh, That ran for about two and a half, three months, and it got to the point where Fretland troops were fighting Indonesian uh, special forces and irregulars on the border, and the situation was mounting to the point where it was expected that there would be a full-scale invasion very very soon. Ahead of this full-scale invasion, invasion, the the young, Fretilin-based East Timorese government unilaterally declared independence. Now, that independence was recognised by a handful of countries around the world, but not enough to save it. And within about a week, Indonesia formally launched its invasion of East Timor, ostensibly uh, on the grounds of trying to resolve an ex- existing conflict but in reality to uh, absorb and incorporate the territory into the Indonesian state. So they launched an invasion. A consequence of that was about a quarter of the population were either killed or died from uh, starvation and disease over the next uh, 24 years uh, of a population of about 650,000 around 180,000 people are known to have died.
1: Damien, what were some of the key events that led to the UN referendum in
0: 1999? The UN uh, organized referendum in 1999, which led to East Timor's independence, came about as a consequence of a number of factors. Uh, Indonesia had claimed for many years that uh, that the resistance to its, its occupation and rule in East Timor had gone away that the East Timorese people were quite happy to be part of Indonesia, even though under international law it had not been recognised as part of Indonesia. That lie was exposed in 1991 when there was a large public protest in Dili, the capital of East Timor, at a place called the Santa Cruz Cemetery. A few days earlier there'd been a small protest and one of the protesters had been killed. So there was a funeral march planned to the Santa Cruz Cemetery on the edge of Dili, and thousands and thousands of people joined in, and this became quite a significant political march. The Indonesian military responded to this by surrounding the cemetery and firing on the protesters. Now, we don't know precisely how many people were killed in that massacre, uh, but the estimates are perhaps somewhere between two and 400 people were, were murdered or were were. were killed at that time. Uh, quite extraordinarily, there was uh, an Australian journalist there at that time with a camera, uh, a movie camera, who filmed the event.
1: His name is Max Stahl and he's somewhat of a legend in Timor-Leste.
0: And he filmed the shooting, the, the protesters being shot, the panic, the, the attack. And he realized that getting the film out from the cemetery at that time was going to be impossible. So what he did was he buried it and actually went back some days later the film was uh, eventually smuggled out of East Timor. When it was smuggled out, it went, to use the jargon these days, it went viral. It was broadcast around the world. It uh, made headlines around the world, and it showed that not only was there continuing resistance to Indonesian rule in East Timor, but that the Indonesian military continued to use quite brutal methods to crack down on any opposition to its rule. I think Indonesia believed that the situation would stabilise, but it ran into a major financial crisis in 1997, uh, the Asian financial crisis of that time, and the then-President Sahato, uh, who was in effect uh, a a dictator, uh, resigned from office, and he was succeeded by his vice-president B.J. Habibie. Uh, B.J. Habibie was very much a technocrat. He didn't care much for politics. He didn't understand why Indonesia uh, was in East Timor, why it maintained a military presence there, why it spent so much money there, and why it cost Indonesia so much diplomatically in, on the international uh, scene. So he was much more open to the idea of resolving this issue. Ultimately, uh, President Habibie, Decided that the people of East Timor should be allowed to vote on either whether they would remain incorporated into Indonesia, and that would settle the matter permanently, or whether they would opt for independence. And the, the ballot was ultimately held on the 30th of August 1999. Uh, I must say that people in the uh, Indonesian military at that time were very resistant to the idea of the ballot proceeding and indeed tried very, very hard to derail it and or persuade people to vote in favour of staying with Indonesia. There was very considerable destruction and violence in the uh, weeks and months in the lead-up to the ballot. And uh, in the days before the ballot, particularly in the countryside, most people had left their homes and gone to hide in the mountains. It was on the day of the ballot, in the morning, that people came down out of the mountains in the darkness by candlelight through incredibly difficult conditions and queued up before dawn so that they were there to be able to cast their ballot from 7am on the morning of the uh, 30th of August 1999. And the ballot ultimately showed, despite the intimidation, despite the violence, despite uh, false voters being trucked in from across the the border, uh, it showed that 78.5% of the people of East Timor wanted independence and that decision was fairly overwhelming and compelling. As a consequence of that, Indonesian militia, which were a proxy for the military, and a number of the military went on a rampage. And as I mentioned earlier, destroyed more than three quarters of the infrastructure of the country, burnt houses, buildings, uh, everything that could keep the place going was was wrecked, and and as I say, murdered uh, around 3,000 people. Bolivar.
2: Joe, please tell us about your experience setting up IRS Timor office in 2000. This was shortly after Indonesian military destroyed the majority of the country's infrastructure, correct?
4: That is correct. The independence referendum had taken place in 1999 and I got there about five months after the Indonesian militias had withdrawn from Timor. Uh, and had pretty much burned everything in their wake. So when I got to Dili, you know, it was a city that was essentially a disaster then. Um There are estimates that you know, 90% of the buildings in the city had been burned down. Um, and I had never seen that kind of destruction before. Everywhere we went, um, it just seemed there was just gaping holes where buildings used to be. Um, So, uh, you know, when you talk about setting up the office, we were literally setting up the office, you know, coming back from my first consultation after we had uh, identified an office space. And I thought we had struck gold because it was a structure that had walls, Uh, no roof, needed to be completely reconstructed. Um, But I brought photos back to show, you know, the folks in D.C., um, and I remember our then president looking at these pictures and listening to me so excitedly talk about what we were going to do. Um, and I remember him looking at me and just saying, I think you're out of your mind. <laughs> um, because, yeah, it was, it was just, it was going to be a complete reconstruction job. But I, I think that, you know, the little, the little efforts that we were having to do were sort of very, very little in comparison to what was going on more broadly in the country.
2: President Horta, you were there at this time. What are your memories of the reconciliation process?
3: We fought a bitter war. Indonesia left the country, uh, humiliated, embarrassed, because of all, is a proud country. And the Timur is rejected Indonesia continuing uh, presence there. So it's normal that they would feel embarrassed, to say the least. But when we uh, extended a hand of friendship to them, they walk halfway back and embrace us. So I also pay tribute to uh, the statementship, the maturity of the Indonesians. They show some, uh, as the French would say, auteur, highness, you know, I say higher, higher alt- attitude, higher personality, by not allowing themselves to be vindictive, to be bitter by the humiliation of uh, being uh, invited to leave, more No, they turn back to us, embrace, and have been since great friends, exemplary relationship. Damien,
2: how are the two countries able to overcome this bitterness so quickly? You don't really see that anywhere else in the world.
0: Look, it's it's very unusual to see uh, two countries with with such a a difficult and bitter history reconciling so quickly. The, The simple reality is that Timor-Leste has a population of about 1 million people, maybe a shade over 1 million people. Indonesia has a population uh, in excess of 250 million people. So there's enormous uh, disproportion in size between the two. Indonesia really has a very significant capacity to destabilise East Timor, should it choose to do so. So Indonesia also saw this as an opportunity to improve its own standing. At the most senior level of government in both countries, there is a very strong public uh, commitment to reconciliation, and both countries have pursued that through a number of avenues.
2: President Horta, did we did we get everything?
0: And
3: one virtue of the Timorese of our people is that they listen to the leadership, and because the leadership articulate their own feelings, their own sentiments, they accepted uh, our uh, advice, our policy. That no looking back at the past, we honor our victims, those who died, those who were tortured, we honor them. But we should not allow ourselves to be hostage of hatred, of anger because of our past experience.
2: Joe, what was the change of mentality from the occupation to autonomy for the country.
4: Um, It's just this incredible sense of optimism. Um, You know, I I have my notes from the very first assessment that I did in Timor in February of 2000. And the statement that that resonated with me then, and it continues to, to resonate with me now, was from an interview with a former resistance fighter, who said to me, "You know, yes, everything we're building—we're building everything from nothing—but what we're building is ours. And that sentiment of the, the pride that people had of of every of, of what they had achieved—you know—they had been able to, this tiny little nation of less than a million people, had resisted." You know, 24 years of an incredibly brutal military occupation, um, and had won out through the power of the vote um, and, and years of, of, of international advocacy. But but that pride of accomplishment and this this confidence and optimism that it gave people that they could indeed build something that was there and that was better um, left an impression on me that that has never gone away. You know, 17 years later.
1: Damien, as I understand, you led election observation missions in Timor Leste in 2007 and 2012. What were some of your main takeaways or observations from those missions?
0: In 2007, Uh, what we were looking at was a situation which is common to newly independent and post-conflict countries where they come out of uh, a period of conflict or or occupation or both and they have enormous aspirations which usually uh, are quite unrealistic and and almost impossible to meet, often set against very low levels of capacity both in terms of state organisation and financial capacity. And that's exactly the situation in East Timor. So, between 2002 and 2006, there was a build-up of political tensions within the Tamri's domestic uh, political environment. These tensions spilled over into riots on a couple of occasions in which uh, there was some destruction and uh, a number of people were killed. But in 2006, it got quite out of hand and the country went to the verge of civil war. Uh, There was uh, widespread destruction, Uh, dozens of people were killed about 150,000 people from a population of about a million were displaced from their homes. So as a consequence, uh, the international community again sent troops and and police back to East Timor to try to bring peace to the country.
2: Damien, what were the two sides of this almost civil war?
0: It's not absolutely clear in the sense of it wasn't a left-right contest. Um, it, it, It basically boiled down to events during the resistance where Shanana Gishmao, who was the leader of the resistance and who subsequently became president and later prime minister uh, decided that if the resistance was be- to be successful, it could not be located within the Fretelin political party, that it must in- embrace all Timorese and all Timorese political parties. So as the military leader of the resistance, he took Falantil, the guerrilla army, out of Fretelin, the political party. And there were many in Fretland who were deeply resentful at that and who objected to it. In, indeed, at the time, there were some who regarded it as a betrayal. And whilst Fretlin formed the first government, they had a majority, uh, their style of government quickly alienated many Timorese, and many people left the party. Elections which had been scheduled for 2007, in any case, were going to be seen as the panacea to this conflict. It would be an opportunity for the people of East Timor to vote on what sort of government they wanted and who they wanted in that government.
2: What were their choices walking into the ballot booth in 2007?
0: The two major parties were Fritlin, which had continued all along, and Janana new party, CNRT. Uh, that party was relatively popular immediately. Fritlin ultimately got a, a larger vote that CNRT was able to form a coalition with a number of other smaller parties and was able to form government.
2: President Horta, with your experience spending 25 years abroad fighting for Timor's independence, what can other countries learn from Timor's struggle for independence and democracy?
3: My view and experience of all these years is that leadership is key to success or failure. The tragedy in Syria has to do with leadership sides or the many sides of Syria within Syria are the ones ultimately responsible for the tragedy. Uh, we would be responsible as we were responsible in the past when we had a crisis in 2006 that caused setback and loss of lives. Who is to blame? We blame outsiders because it's often it's so convenient when you hear failed leaders always blame someone else. They are not able to look themselves in the mirror, even when they are alone, that no one is listening, (laughs) and they cannot accept that, yes, I'm the one who failed. In 2006, our leadership failed. Fortunately, we woke up, assisted by an international community, and within one year, without too much uh, loss of life, we managed to stop the bleeding of the sliding of the country into a civil war.
2: President Horta, what was the most difficult decision you had to make as president of Timor-Leste?
3: I was elected in 2007. Before that, I was prime minister. When the prime minister at that time was forced to resign because of political crisis, I was the only person that was consensual to take over as prime minister. That was the most difficult uh, period. My priorities at the time was to work with the United Nations and our international partners, friends, to stabilize the situation, to stop the violence and the unraveling of our fragile country. We succeeded, and I don't say I succeeded, we succeeded. Succeeded because we were able to work together. I was able to reach out and bridge the divide in the Timorese community and bring everybody together, including the church, civil society. And we had elections unscheduled in spite of the crisis. We were able to uh, stop the crisis, and not allow it to slide further into virtual civil war. Uh, basic conditions were created for new elections to take place, and they took place according to the constitutional calendar. Not one day more, not one day less. No delays. <clears throat> I was elected president. I continued the efforts when I was prime minister. Dialogue and dialogue and dialogue. And dialogue means listening to people. Dialogue doesn't mean the president delivers speeches after speeches. No, it means you sit and you listen. And I listen until I drop tired, sleepy, uh, exhausted. But I absorb the concerns of the people I, uh, and working with everybody, I was able to, by the time I left office, midnight, at stroke of midnight, 19 May 2012, not one minute less, not one minute more, strictly according to the constitution. I hand over a country very different from the one I received five years earlier. And uh, there were people in tears because they saw, they remember, because only five years earlier, what I was talking about. Uh, So I was, my conscious was at ease. But to achieve that, it was not the work of one person. And we all uh, delivered peace back to our people. And I was most pleased. When I left the ceremony, I went home, a huge, uh, heavy burden was off my
2: shoulders.
1: Damien, could you tell us about the current political situation of the country?
0: One of the key debates that's been occurring in Tamarist political society for the last few years has been that its politics have been dominated by the generation of 75, as they're called. That is, the political leaders who were part of the initial uh, independence movement and resistance to Indonesian occupation. Now, most of these people are starting to get relatively old, and there has been a view expressed that younger people should be brought into the political system, and that's been around for some time. There has also been a discussion about the notion that competitive party politics is perhaps not the best model for East Timor, that there is still an undercurrent of tension, which too easily allows the country to descend into conflict. So a couple of years ago, uh, Janani now as prime minister, voluntarily stepped down. Uh, after the 2012 election, uh, CNRT was again able to form a coalition and became the government. But a couple of years ago, now said look we are the government but I think we need to reconsider how we structure ourselves and how we organize politics in the country so what he did is he stepped down as prime minister invited a fretlin member a member from the uh, opposition party to become the new prime minister and bought Fretlin into a coalition government so You have in East Timor now what's referred to as a government of national unity. That was seen as a very important stabilising gesture and one which began the transition from the generation of 75 to the uh, so-called younger generation or new generation of political leaders. The difficulty with that is, though, that it did not leave the country with a viable opposition. And, of course, we know that in political environments where there's no viable opposition, there's limited accountability, political accountability, and there is a tendency for governments to operate less efficiently and indeed sometimes to become quite corrupt. And we have in fact seen that occur in East Timor over the last several years, particularly over the last couple of years.
1: Joe, Timor-Leste held presidential elections in March of 2017. Who was elected
4: president? The, uh, the election winner was Francisco Gutierrez, also known as Luolo. Who was the candidate of the Frefalin party? Um, Luolo was a former Falentil commander, and Falentil was the um, the armed force of the Timorese resistance movement. And so, throughout the entire 24 years of Indonesian occupation, Luolo was uh, a guerrilla leader, and so led the Falentil forces uh, from the mountains, from the jungles, um, right up until independence. He has he's been the president of Wrestling uh, since since independence. Um, he's also run twice previously for president in two thousand and seven and two thousand and twelve. So for him, third time lucky. Um, but it was it was an overwhelming victory. You know, it looks like fifty seven percent of voters um, voted for him.
2: I see. And you mentioned a little bit about IRI's polling. Was the most recent poll 2016? Yes. What were some of the key takeaways from the most recent poll?
4: The, the sort of big numbers were that the, you know, people generally feeling the country is moving in the right direction. So, you know, for example, 57% were saying that uh, the country is better off than it was. But again reflecting the sense of optimism, seventy two percent of respondents were saying that they believe that team or that they'll be better off in the future. And so, you know, I, I see that as quite significant with knowing that there's an election, this is an election year, there was elections in front of them. There's there's a sense that there are opportunities to for people to have their voices heard and they believe that this will contribute to improvements in the country. There was also sort of generally positive nearly fifty percent were saying that things were moving in the right direction. Now, that wasn't that was a dip from from the last poll, which which I believe was in 2013. Um, but when you when you dig a little deeper into that, when ask you know when we were asking people why did people feel things were not moving in the right direction, what was driving that sentiment was frustration about infrastructure, frustration <laughs> about roads. Considering the the literal geography of the place, it's a small country, it's half of an island, but it's very remote. You know, the, the rural areas are hard to access, very mountainous. Um, really badly affected by, you know, if there's a rainstorm that sends a mudslide across the road, entire communities are cut off for weeks at a time. So, you know, the, the infrastructure questions are serious ones. That I think really I can see why people connect that to future prosperity, you know, current well-being and future prosperity.
2: Yeah, and I know there are some standard questions that IRI asks globally, one of which is democracy versus prosperity. Was that in that poll? And, and if so, how did, how did the how did the people respond?
4: Yeah, the, the, the sense in Timor certainly that came from our poll is, you know, nearly half of respondents are saying that democracy is more important um, than a prosperous economy. Um, and, I, you know, I tie that back to the this, this very intimate knowledge that people have of how hard they have fought for the democracy they have. Um, it's one of the reasons that I believe that sort of optimism, even as Timor has gone through these ups and downs and faced, you know, various constitutional and, and political crises, um, that people remain essentially believing in this as a system because they know what they had, to what was sacrificed to get them where they are today. And I think they're not willing to to give that up quite so easily.
2: President Horta, what are the greatest challenges and opportunities for Timor-Leste in the next 10 years?
3: The next 10 years, we have exceptional challenges. As uh, oil and gas revenues dwindle, because of the collapse of the oil and gas price and the the dry-up of our existing oil field, we will struggle with resources to continue some of the ambitious uh, projects we have, infrastructure development, education, health, etc. So that's at one level. We have to cut down public expenditure. There has been too much wasteful. There has been too much corruption, abuse by political elites, by leaders. We have to uh, refocus our attention, double our attention on rural development and poverty alleviation with intelligent, smart uh, policies that really create jobs for uh, the people. And at the same time, maintaining political stability, unity of the country, uh, foster a new generation of leaders with integrity. It's not only new generation, it has to be new generation with integrity and the smartness. Uh, new generation in itself doesn't resolve the problems <laughs> generation new generation that is highly motivated, that inspired, that is inspiring, that is well-trained.
2: President Horta, how can the international community help to continue to assist the growth of Timor-Leste?
3: The U.S. has been very generous in providing uh, bilateral financial economic assistance uh, through U.S. aid programs and uh, through IRI in particular that has stayed on in Timor-Leste since independence uh, in helping working with civil society, political party system, strengthening our fragile democracy, strengthening our judiciary, our media. So all of these are necessary uh, uh, for uh, creating stability because if you don't you don't talk about stability, don't talk about peace and if they happen, you have uh, to build institutions of the state, institutions of the country and that uh, working all together guarantee that there is peace, stability in the country. You know, unlike uh, in some other countries uh, who, <clears throat> that you know uh, view uh, support from institutions like IRI or NDI to civil society as a threat to them, like it happened in Egypt, uh, we don't view that as a as a problem. Quite the contrary, and the IRI is a partner of Timor-Leste to help fostering democracy. And democracy, when it's genuine, it means stability. It means good governance. And this process takes a long time. This is not, you cannot have a one-year program. Uh, And so IRI has been serious, and because it's been serious, it's been there 15 years. And uh, so I'm very grateful for that. I hope that uh, the US Congress administration continue to uh, provide the necessary financial means to IRI to continue for another five, ten years, because building of a state democratic institutions, there are no shortcuts to that. There are no easy uh, solutions. You have to stay engaged, accept the failings, ups and down, frustrations, setbacks, and uh, then uh, by staying steady, engaged, after 10, 20 years, you say, yes, now we we can leave. They no longer need us.
2: Damien, if you've listened to any of our past episodes, you know we ask this question every episode. If an international time capsule was shot off into deep space, what would be included in it to represent Timor-Leste?
0: <laughs> their animist uh, or spirit beliefs. Their beliefs in sp- uh, local spirits, local religions, and so on, despite the country being Catholic and I think uh something that represented that would need to be the first thing if it had to be one item, what would it be? It would be buffalo horns, I think buffalo horns are used as a symbolic representation of uh, that form of spirit worship, and it's referred to as Lulik, the sacred, um, but buffalo horns are, are, are you find them marking graves um, they come they're used in ceremonies and so on, so lots of things have a sacred quality, but buffalo horns are probably the most common feature. Um, also, ties the woven cloth of the country, which represents the different communities. I think that would have to be included in as well.
1: JT, so if the listeners need to only remember three things, what are
2: they? Yeah, what are the big three takeaways? So, Stacey, you go first.
1: I think one of the major takeaways from this episode is is that the reconciliation between Indonesia and Timor-Leste has benefited both countries. The international community should really applaud them for this and, and learn from them.
2: I agree. Another one is the significant youth bulge coming up in the country. The current crop of leadership are old revolutionaries, the new the new crop is coming on board. The next generation of political leaders needs to fill this vacuum.
1: And finally, while a consensus government sounds great in theory, we learn there are some fears and apprehensions about what could happen if there was a one-party state.
2: And you need a loyal opposition, which I think is also important.
1: Exactly. That helps deter the fears of corruption or a non-responsive, complacent government. Timor-Leste could see itself on a slippery slope.
2: If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and let us know what you like about the show or request a specific country. Amy Tran wanted to hear about a country in Southeast Asia. And we were happy to oblige.
1: Big thank you to our guests, Jose Ramos-Horta, former president of Timor-Leste and member of IRI's International Advisory Council.
2: Damian Kingsbury of Deakin University.
1: And IRI's own Joanna Cow. You can tweet at her or follow her on Twitter at Joanna Cow. So listeners, when JT and I started this episode, we actually had a little bit of an argument between ourselves.
2: A little bit. Uh, we argue a lot, Stacey.
1: Yeah, well, we both have roots in Jersey, <laughs> yes, so that's probably why. I know. I frequently enjoy hearing about smaller countries, countries I know nothing about, like Guyana, Guinea-Bissau, Andorra, and Timor-Leste. And I think those are really important to cover.
2: But there are a lot of countries we hear about every day that we don't know a lot about. I mean, we hear a lot about Russia, Syria. And we learned a lot about Syria, I think, in that podcast. I agree. Um, so the headlines are equally important, Stacey. I think it's, a, it's an argument that we'll have to leave for later. Or... Our guests maybe can settle the answer
1: yeah definitely listeners if you have an opinion on this issue or again a country you'd like to hear about tweet at us or send us an email
2: our theme was composed by Alex Hollinghead in this episode we've heard some great music from Timor-Leste including Balibo and Timo Loro say by Ego Lemos as well as the national anthem of Timor-Leste until next time friends see you later
1: JT, would you like to give our listeners a hint as to the next
3: episode? I
2: guess I have to. Um, The first U.S. consulate in sub-Saharan Africa was in this country. Good luck. Get it right, and we'll give you a shout-out on our next show. See you later.